Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. So we're delighted to welcome Mary Kipp, the President and CEO of Puget Sound Energy. And as you may know, PSE provides electricity to 1.2 million customers and gas services to 900,000 customers throughout our region. And probably most of us, if not all of us, are customers. I know I am, right? So besides Mary Kipp and myself up here on stage, we have three panelists. They will have some questions for Mary Kipp. And then we've also crowdsourced questions from those of you who registered, and I will be asking those questions. So basically, the four of us will be taking turns asking questions, and Mary will start off with about a 10-minute presentation, and then we'll get to those questions. So Mary was named president of PSE in August of 2019 and CEO in January of 2020, and she joined PSE from El Paso Electric, where she served as CEO starting in 2015 and president in 2014. And she joined that company in 2007. Prior to that, she was a prosecuting attorney for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which investigates and prosecutes violations of federal energy laws. She is a member of the board of directors of the Alliance to Save Energy and the Energy Insurance Mutual and is co-chair of Edison Electric Institute for Electric Innovation. She's the immediate past chair of the Smart Electric Power Alliance and a past deputy chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. And of course, she is also a member of the Board of Trustees of Seattle U. She received her undergraduate degree from Williams College and her JD from the University of Texas. So please join me in welcoming Mary Kipp to Seattle University. So first, I just want to say, again, thank you to all of you who braved this crazy weather. I think we're at the end of the atmospheric river of rain or whatever. It used to be called the Pineapple Express, which is such a friendlier term than atmospheric river of rain. But thank you for coming out. And I imagine all of you are here today because you care about climate change and you care about our clean energy future. And I wanted to say a couple words about the privilege it is not only to be here, but also to serve on the board of Seattle University. I'm a, I'm a relatively new board member. I've learned about Jesuit education through my service on the board and when I was exploring service on the board. And I really think there's no better type of institution to really help us with some of these huge problems that we're facing today than a Jesuit education. And something that I really like about it is one, the education of the complete person but also the bias for action that I think is inherent in a Jesuit education. It's not that we just learn, so we also then need to do something about it, sometimes while we're learning. So I really, really appreciate that. And having had the privilege to watch the new president, Eduardo Penalver, in action, I am constantly getting tips from you. You don't know this. I watch what he does in board meetings, and I think, I need to do that in my board meeting. He's a really good leader. And speaking of board meetings, also today at present is my boss, Scott Armstrong. He is our brand new chair. He's been on our board for some time, but he is our new chair at PSC, uh, replacing Steve Hooper, who just retired as chair. He was also the, uh, Steve was also the chair of REI. He went off both boards at the same time to 
spend more time doing triathlons, even though he is in his 70s. So I think that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. But Scott is, is a Seattleite who cares deeply about the earth, climate change, equity, and all of the things that matter to all of us in this room. And so it's a privilege to have him here as well. So not just saying that because you're my boss. <laughs> I wanted to start maybe with a little prologue, which is always terribly dangerous. My comms people always say to me, message discipline and consistency, Mary. Message discipline and consistency. And then I completely ignore them. And then it drives them crazy. So sorry in advance. But one of the things I've spent a lot of time thinking about during the pandemic, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it for most of my life, but it's become very acute during the pandemic. And that's a couple of questions around climate change. So I don't have the answers to either of them, by the way. They're just questions for all of us to ponder, and I'm sure there would be a great graduate-level course in this topic. But one is, why did it take us so long to understand the imperative of anthropogenic climate change? If you look back, even during the Nixon administration, and I think most of you know Nixon actually, we remember him for Watergate, but he actually started the EPA, which is pretty impressive. But even back in 1969, when I was two years old, he was talking about climate change. If you go back to 1988, you had folks from NASA, like, I forget his first name, but his last name's Hansen. He was talking a lot about climate change, and he never stopped, by the way. I remember when I was in D.C. and I was on maternity leave from FERC, and I remember sitting and listening to NPR when my son, who's now 15, had just been born, and he was still talking about climate change. Michael Oppenheimer was talking about it. But for some reason, it never reached the level that we created action around it. So we could debate why is that, you know, was it big oil? Well, now big oil's changing, right? Why didn't that happen 20 years ago? 30 years ago, climate change wasn't a politicized issue. So why did it take so long? Don't know. Second, why did the awareness grow so, so quickly once it did happen? And I'm not phrasing that well, but I look back, I was speaking at the North America Clean Energy Summit back in September of 2018. And it was in Los Angeles, and it was in a really big room. I mean, thousands of people back in the old days, right? Nobody wearing a mask. And I was on a CEO panel, and there were three of us. And the question from Julia Hamm, who was the head of Smart Energy Power Association, which used to be called Solar Energy Power Association, the question she posed to us is, you know, what keeps you up at night? So we as utility CEOs, we like group things. So we always have to have the same answer to everything. But I'm a little bit of a renegade, which means like 1% because utility CEOs aren't real renegades. But the right answer to the question based on what we knew at the time was cybersecurity. And obviously cybersecurity is a huge issue. And we've all seen tons and tons of issues with cyber breaches. And it is a very serious issue we face every day. I instead said anthropogenic climate change. September 2018, that made news. The fact that three years ago, a utility CEO said anthropogenic climate change is a big deal made news. That's like yesterday, right? And so after that, you know, things started to get rolling. I like to think it was all because I said that, so it was all about me, right? No, I think, you know, I think, well, what happened there? So in October, the UN Committee on Climate came out with their report basically saying, look, guys, we have 12 years. If we can't get this thing, you know, more normalized, limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees centigrade, we're going to see floods, famines, displacement of peoples, all the things that we're seeing today. But for some reason, between now and then, we started talking about it more. 
And I'm going to say one other thing, and you guys are going to get really angry, and you're going to want to jump up out of your seats and yell at me, but let me finish my thought first. There's someone else, I think, that we really have to give some credit to on this. That's Donald Trump. By completely abdicating responsibility for climate change and by taking us out of the Paris Accords, that guy inadvertently fanned the movement. And I think what he did is he had us as individuals, us as leaders, us as students, and individual states and communities wake up and say, okay, if our federal government isn't going to do anything about it, we need to do something about it. And so I think that's been a big part of it. And then obviously for those of you who are you know, Gen Z, you've seen a lot more of the types of displacements and heat domes and all these terrible things that we talk about. But I really do think that Donald Trump, by completely abandoning things, made us all take responsibility for it. And so for that, I am grateful. <laughs> Moving on from that. It's exciting to be at PSE, and we heard a little bit about PSE. I'm here representing one of 3,000-something employees, all of whom are very dedicated and have been since 1873. Not the same employees, but since 1873, keeping the lights and the heat on and taking care of our communities and being there to make sure that people stayed safe in outages. Like this weather we've had recently has just been remarkable, and some of the heroic feats that our crews have been through are just phenomenal and that's something that we can talk about another time but it's really it gives me a deep sense of admiration for them and I'm not sure I could do it but what brought me to PSC is kind of what I was talking about in terms of states and communities getting active so Washington state became the leader nationally in climate under the leadership of Governor Inslee the state legislature people like Senator Carlisle and others got together and said, we're going to do something about this if the federal government is. And so they passed the Clean Energy Transformation Act. So I decided I want to come here, work on the biggest lift there is in climate, because we only get this one life, I think, and I want to make a difference. So that's why I'm here. Did I go more than 10 minutes? I get on a roll sometimes. No sometimes I go one minute, sometimes I go 20 minutes. You just don't know. No, it was all good. I, I wasn't timing you, don't worry. <laughs> okay, thank you for that uh, kickoff, Mary. That was great. So let me next give a brief introduction of our panelists, and then we'll get to questions for Mary. So in the middle there is Megan McCallum, and she is a student in our professional MBA program. She works at PACAR as an asset manager for PACAR Financial. She graduated from Gonzaga with her business undergrad degree and a Spanish minor. She was also on Gonzaga's rowing team for four years. In her free time, she loves to be out hiking, skiing, or running. And since she grew up in the Snoqualmie Valley, she has also been a lifetime PSE customer. Right? Thank you. <laughs> and the end is uh, Renee Gastineau. Renee earned her MBA in Albers in 2004. Today, she works for a business unit of Engie, which is a global energy and services group that operates in three key business sectors of low-carbon electricity generation, energy infrastructure, and customer solutions. She's the director of product growth solutions at Engie Impact, meaning she's responsible for developing products and services that help global corporations measure and report their carbon impact set decarbonization targets, and deliver roadmaps to carbon reduction goals. Her prior industry experience includes marketing and sales for several clean tech startup companies. And then closest to me is Kevin Dong. He is a senior from Denver, Colorado, studying finance and marketing. He serves as a new student mentor here in the Albert School, 
and is vice president of membership for Beta Alpha Psi, which is the Accounting Honor Society. He currently has an internship with the Washington State Department of Transportation doing budget analysis. And for fun, he also likes to attend sporting events and explore the outdoors. So those are our three panelists. <laughs> Renee, I think I'll let you go first. Joe, thank you so much. And thank you so much for being here, Mary. It's really exciting to have the opportunity to ask you questions and hear a little bit about your personal story and why you chose the career you did and why you decided to come here to Washington State. So, so welcome. Thank you. And just as an aside, you know, I live on Whidbey Island. We got walloped by that storm. So <laughs> I, I heard. We had like 12,000 customers still out yesterday and almost all of them were on Whidbey Island. So I apologize. No, well, I was going to say thank you. My power came on yesterday morning. Yes. So yeah, my questions might have been different if that hadn't happened tonight, but no, thank you, and, and thank you to your crew, so, so thank you so much. But my first question is really understanding kind of PSC's journey around transparency around renewable energy and, and carbon and climate action, and so I noticed through reading through your ESG report, Environmental, Social, and Governance Report today, that it's the second year that you've been transparent and put this report out publicly, and so I'm curious what motivated you to be so transparent about your actions and your strategies, and, and who are the stakeholders, who are the audiences for that type of communication. Yeah, so it's interesting. One of my leadership tenets, and I think Scott and I share this, is transparency. I feel like we no longer live in a world where we can be the master of our own destiny without letting others have input. And even if you try not to be transparent, people are gonna find the information anyway if you wanna look at it from a Machiavellian perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just the right thing to do. And so at my prior utility, El Paso Electric, we also, put out our, our ESG information. As you know very well, it's scary to put that information out there, especially as we're moving towards a more defined and rigorous set of requirements around ESG reporting. When it's purely voluntary, people can kind of put out what they want. There was a, an Edison Electric Institute framework that people generally followed, but you know, people could put out there what made them look good. Now as we're moving towards a more defined framework, both through the SEC and for the purpose of getting green bonds, you have to put it all out there. And some of it is not pretty. And some of it shows what we need to work on, right? So as we sit here today, PSE has 35% clean energy. Now we'll be up to 59% in 2025. But as we sit here, we're at 35%. We still have coal. We'll be out of coal in 2025, but we still have it. And so we have to put all of that out. I would posit that. Our DEI numbers aren't what I would want them to be. I mean, fortunately, we've been able to kind of start at the top recently and hired. I've had six new officer hires, three of whom have been diverse candidates, which I'm proud of and yet wish we were doing more. But I think you have to be transparent. You have to put metrics out there for all of your stakeholders to judge you by, not just yourself. And if you're going to put the stuff out for people to give you a pat on the back about, you need to put the stuff out there, too, that people can say, you know what, you need to work harder on that. So that's, that's kind of where I am, and I think that answers your question. Yeah, it did a lot, and I agree with your point. It's like once you start down that path, you can't turn around. So and it's you know, scary. It's scary. But good. Okay, so Mary, because I work for PACCAR and I'm in the transportation industry, I have to ask you, as more cars become more and more electrified, does Puget Sound Energy plan to partner with King County or the private sector to accommodate for public access charging stations? 
So the answer is yes, and we are. Not as much as I wish we were, but electrification of transport, to me, is, is the next big area. And it's not only going to be automobiles, but as we get into alternative fuels, more efficient batteries and things, I think we're going to hopefully get to aircraft and also get to ships, which obviously is a big challenge. In terms of partnering, I'm a huge believer in partnering. And in fact, one of the things that had I not gone off on my spontaneous prologue or extemporaneous prologue that, that I had is really PSEs, kind of what we're doing right now, and we announced it. Our board made us really think it out before they let us just announce something that didn't make a lot of sense. They made us have metrics and a white paper and show we could do it. But is it's called Beyond Net Zero Carbon. And we were the first dual utility, meaning we're not only electric, but also end user natural gas, to announce this kind of thing. And so there are three parts. One is that we are going to decarbonize our own sources of energy in our own facilities, largely consistent with CETA or the Clean Energy Transformation Act that I mentioned previously. The second one, and we can talk about this more later too, is we're going to decarbonize natural gas. And some of that will be through mechanical means like leak reduction. Other things are going to be kind of pie in the sky, bet things that we're hoping will happen in the future. And we're investing in making sure they happen, such as alternative fuels, hydrogen, renewable natural gas, things like that. And the third one is helping our customers electrify and to have net zero carbon. And a huge part of that is through transport. We have about 10 vehicle electrification programs going right now, mostly in pilots. In the way we're regulated, we have to jump into everything very, very slowly. We have to show it's going to work. It's not going to cause harm to our customers. And over time, the Washington Utility and Transport Commission will let us do bigger ones. But we have 10 going. A lot of them are for the public. Many of them are low income. Low income is going to be a really, really important part of this clean energy transformation. People with more money, bigger houses, bigger economies, countries with bigger economies were the beneficiaries of our carbon economy. So we need to make sure that the beneficiaries of the next gen economy are those who weren't as big of beneficiaries. So that's going to be really important. But super important to us. We have a whole division of the company focused on that. And it really is about partnering because we're not going to be able to figure it out without entities like PACAR, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Thank you. guess it's my turn. All right, Mary, so I heard earlier you talk about low-income families and people with low-income backgrounds as well. I'm kind of curious of what kind of services you're offering them in order to steer them towards this renewable energy lifestyle, whether it's some kind of matter of affordability or whether it's some kind of certain outreach initiatives. So it's, it's going to be all of the above. I'm really excited. In this last legislative session this year, there was some really wonky legislation passed that probably most people would miss because they wouldn't be interested in it. But it was actually legislation that would help us implement the Clean Energy Transformation Act. So it's implementing legislation. But another part of that was a piece of legislation that allows us to actually charge different rates to low-income customers than we do to customers who are more affluent. And this may not seem like a big deal, but it really is, because it's allowing us to transfer some of the costs of the clean energy uh, transformation to those who can bear it more, and allowing folks who can't bear it, and to whom $5 on their bill is a big deal, to not have to pay as much. The other thing we're doing as part of, I'm just going to start calling it CETA, which is what we call it. I hate acronyms, but Clean Energy Transformation Act. I keep getting tongue-tied, so I'm just going to go CETA. CETA. So the, the other part of CETA that I really, really like, I mean, there are a few, but it requires that we actually set up equity advisory groups. So everything that we look at as we look at doing this clean energy transformation, 
we have to have input from all of these various groups and communities, many of whom we didn't even know existed in the past. I mean, it's embarrassing to say that, but you know, we thought we were good at outreach like we always do, but there's always more work to be done. So the folks who comprise these groups, and they, it really is a very diverse set of, of folks, get to weigh in on how we are going to lead this. And that is really exciting to me. And then another thing we're doing that's voluntary in connection with our Beyond Net Zero Carbon group, and this is really exciting to me, is Governor Gregoire has agreed to lead an advisory group for Beyond Net Zero. And that's gonna be a combination of technical experts because once again, we can't do this alone. We don't have all the expertise on this. You know, we're not a huge company in the grand scheme of the world. We have a lot of smart people up here. So it's technical experts, but it's also people from diverse communities to come in and weigh in on all of this. So going back to the question on transparency, we're in a new level of transparency. I mean, the utility industry, like many other industries, used to be, we have the answers, we know everything, we're a culture of engineers, don't you worry. And now we're actually saying, you know what? This climate change thing is bigger than all of us. Technology isn't all here. We don't know how we're gonna hit all of these goals, so let's get together and let's do it. And this is something else I love about the Jesuit education, and I think we need more on, is let's do it in a collaborative, respectful fashion, right? So. Natural gas is a great example. I'm sure there are people in this room who just want to say natural gas is bad and then we can argue about it. But if we could actually have a conversation, actually be open based on facts, and I mean myself as well, to having our minds changed, that's how we're really going to solve this thing. And I think a great corollary to this is how people came together over COVID. People who had adverse interests or were competitors came together during COVID, thought about how do we really solve this thing that's bigger than all of us, and I think made meaningful change. So hopefully we're going to do that, especially with regard to equity and technology on the clean energy transition. Thank you. I want to combine Kevin's question and your mention of COVID there. So speaking of underserved groups, and COVID, we know a lot of families were stressed to pay utility bills, electric bills, gas bills. So obviously that was happening for PSE. How did you navigate that challenge and that problem as a for-profit company, right, that has certain responsibilities to shareholders as well? How do you make that decision? You know, because it's a particular product that you have. It's essentially a good that people can't live without, right? So you, you can't think lightly about shutting off the power or shutting off the gas. Absolutely. So how do you navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I can tell you about my journey as CEO a little bit and it will then answer that question. So I became CEO on January 3rd of 2020. On March 5th of 2020, I'm looking at Scott because he was living this with me. We send everybody home. And we did that because I, I have the privilege of sitting in a group called Challenge Seattle, which has a lot of CEOs, including those of Microsoft, Starbucks, others, who got us together and said, look, based on our experience in China and Italy, we all have to go home. So here I was as this new CEO thinking, I've been in the seat two months and I'm gonna send everybody home. Everybody's gonna think I'm insane. This could be so embarrassing. Am I gonna be the woman who cried wolf? And then my dear departed mother's voice was in my head. And it said, you know, Mary, the worst thing that happens if you, if you send people home is it's embarrassing. The worst thing that happens if you don't is people die. So that makes it pretty easy. But the other big decision we made there, to answer your question, is we also made sure that nobody was going to go without heat, hot water, the basic necessities of life, to your point. And it became especially imperative because people were working from home, 
Kids were learning from home. People were losing jobs. People were struggling. It was a terrible time. We also made a decision that we weren't going to lay anyone off during COVID, and that was a tough decision as well. But we actually, even before it became a government requirement, we said moratorium on disconnects. We're going to carry everybody through this. You are our customers. We owe this to you. And so that's what we did. Shortly after that, Governor Inslee and others mandated that there be no disconnects. So luckily, we get credit for doing it voluntarily, I guess. But in all seriousness, everyone from the private sector to the government recognized that was the right thing to do. Now, recently, we've begun that process again. But we are trying to make sure that we avoid disconnects to the extent that we can. And actually, I believe we've spent about $11 million the number's probably higher than that now, but helping customers pay their bills. There was a fund that we set up working with the Washington Utility Commission, because I mentioned we have to get permission for everything, even good things, and we set that up and have let us get out there, especially through agencies, to say to customers, hey, if you can't pay your bills, let us know. We have money that we can use to apply to help you pay your bill. And then, of course, we also gave a lot of money to community organizations, food banks, we have a culture of volunteerism at our company as well. So, you know, we're part of this community. We live, we work here, these are our families and friends, and I am not gonna preside over a company and nor is Scott gonna chair a company or sit on the board where we let people down when they're in desperate situations. Mary, I want to follow up on a comment that you made earlier. You talked about, you know, technology partners and kind of really building collaborations. In the past, it has not been easy for entrepreneurs to crack into selling to utilities. So I'm curious what has changed or, or how are you making it easier for young Seattle University business student with a big idea for the clean energy economy to, to partner with a utility to be part of this green jobs economy? That is such a great question. And I'll start by saying we need to do more. So as I think about it, we need to do more, and I'm making a mental note of that's something that we have to work on. But I would say one thing that we're doing is we're talking about transparency. So people know what we're working on. People know we're out there. Two, we're trying to deal with hubris. Talked about how historically we think we know all the answers and because we've kept the power and lights on, and now we're actually acknowledging that people who are coming up through the universities right now and even people in high school are going to be the people who help us solve some of these really big hairy technological problems. It's not going to be me. So we have an Office of Energy Innovation, and I would encourage anyone who wants to to reach out to me, quite honestly, and I can put people in touch with folks from that office. We also have some internship programs that I think are really terrific, but we just need to find more formal ways of collaborating, I think, with universities. We have some but that's one of the things that I'd really like to do better. And especially now that hopefully the pandemic is winding down, we can find some ways to do that better. Do you have any thoughts on that? On what might Well, work? I was going to ask you a reverse pitch. Like, what are the areas of need, you know, where people are looking for? So is it is it data? Is it visualizations? Is it, you know, I like the app where I knew where my power was going to be on by 11.59 you know, yeah. p.m., you know? So what are the areas, you know, so energy storage, it, all of those yeah, things? Yeah, it's going to yeah. be all of the above. And one of the areas that I think is going to be really imperative as we move ahead, and this does get into some controversy, but we are going to need both our gas and our electric system in the near term to solve this problem. Because, for example, on a cold winter day in Seattle, two-thirds of the energy is coming from natural gas. We already have to get 65% more clean energy 
I'm a liberal arts, not a math person, English theater <laughs> major, just so you know, so the math is a little rough for me. But we have to already have that lift in terms of you know, clean electricity. So if we then just cut off the gas system on top of that, we're gonna have things come crashing down. So what we need some real expertise on, and if I could wave a magic wand, and we've been working with a company called E3 that's an engineering firm that's done a lot of work for us on this, but it's how do you optimize the existing assets to make sure you decarbonize as quickly as you possibly can without leaving anybody behind. Because we're talking about clean energy, right? But you touched on something really important, which is energy also has to be affordable. And you touched on something, it has to be equitable. So how do we maximize the existing infrastructure we have to make sure that we're getting there very, very quickly and also not having unintended consequences, right? So let's say I turn off the natural gas system. First thing that's gonna happen is we're gonna turn back on some coal plants that we've already retired. We've seen these things happen in California with natural gas plants. So it's really kind of that systems thinking around how do we partner to solve this? I think we need a lot of expertise there. Another area clearly is data in terms of our customers. The more data we can have on our customers' usage, the more efficient we'll be in terms of using our distribution grid and customer-sided sources of energy to enable us to meet this clean energy transition. Because, for example, PSE has a really old and really terrific energy efficiency program. We also have a great demand response program. We're gonna have more and more customer-sided solar, customer-sided storage. Vehicles eventually are not only going to be a sink, but also a source, right? And so we're gonna need people who are data scientists who can help us figure this out. And then the other one I would say is kind of on some of the new technologies that we're going to have to have to get there. Hydrogen being a big one right now, renewable natural gas, different forms of storage than we have currently, ones that are more affordable and can go longer than four or six hours. Four or six hours, great in the southwest where I come from, not so great up here on days like today on Whidbey Island, you know. And so people who actually have the technical skills to help us figure these things out I love to tell my kids when they complain, which my son does a lot more than my daughter, which is kind of interesting, but that's a whole nother story. My daughter's 24, my son's 15, but you know, there, there are people in life who talk and then there are people who do, right? So sometimes talking is important. Like before people were saying, climate change is real and it's here, we've got to do something. It was important to be saying that. It was important to be marching on it. But now we know, so we've got to do. And that's where the collaboration and the thinking comes in. And if we just spend time now beating each other up and saying, well, you're wrong, you're wrong, this is bad, we're not gonna get anywhere. It's about bringing people in who can work on this. So those are some of the top of mind things for me. And then we also need people, I've always gotta make the liberal arts plug, people who can communicate and people who can translate engineer to people like me. We need folks like that who can actually help us understand collectively where we're headed because I think that creates hope, right? If we can understand there is a path forward and it also alleviates some tension. Thank you. I just want to add on to that as a college student right now. Do it. As much as these sources are available, what can we do as our daily lifestyle to reduce this climate change just as a college student's perspective? So there, there are so many things. And I have a dear friend who is 15 years old. His name is Anton Stanley Hunt. His dads are actually my good friends, but Anton and I have become friends, and he has spent so much time educating me on some of these things. So, so one, listen to younger people, but a big one is food waste, and we do not think about climate impacts on food waste. So when we talk about renewable natural gas, you know, that's landfill gas. That is methane coming off landfills from us wasting food, and we don't spend enough time talking about that. So that's one. Two, I mean, I think... 
using public transport, biking, all the things we're good at here in Seattle, I think that's a big one. I grew up on a cattle ranch, but eating less meat, that's another big one. That, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables, that helps. And then, like, I made the choice when I moved here, and it's a privilege to be able to do this, but I made a choice to live on a houseboat, which is small. It's a smaller footprint. So to the extent that you can choose to live in a smaller home, being mindful of everything that you carry in and out, all of that, really does make a difference. And then obviously advocate for clean, you know, climate policies and use your voice. I think our voices are one of the most powerful tools that we have and, and use them in a constructive way, not just in a, hey, let's tear the whole thing down. Use it in a way like, I want to be part of this solution. And then don't give up. That's the other one. I, I, I remember years ago hearing about someone who's a reef scientist working on the Great Barrier Reef and apparently like 80% of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. And he said, I don't like to talk about the 80% that's dead because then people give up on the other 20%. So it's bad, but we can still do this and we've just got to not give up. And I think advocating for hope and belief in the future is huge as well. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Mary, question for you. I know PSC offers rebates for implementing like greener solutions into your home, but has this implementation made a measurable impact in climate change? I would say it's made a huge, huge impact. And in fact, I can probably give you a number. And now that I'm 54, I'm not as good at remembering numbers as I once was. So I mentioned we have, I think we have the oldest energy efficiency program in the country, which is really cool. And uh, it's also one of the most effective. And what I like about energy efficiency is to me, the best kilowatt hour is the one you don't have to generate, right? Talk about carbon neutral, talk about no carbon. And so we have to date saved over 67 billion electric kilowatt hours and 600 million natural gas therms. So that is huge, that is impactful, and that makes a huge difference. So when you do contact PSE to take advantage of these programs, you are making a difference. It's, it's not water over stone, but it's more like you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? And we all do these little things and pretty soon it makes a difference. So I, I think it has. And, and that's something that we're looking for more and more ways to work on. Something that we've been talking about doing on the natural gas front, for example, on our end use system on natural gas, and I've actually done this in my houseboat, is trying to find a way to have our natural gas system be a peaking system for extreme cold weather. So I've installed in my house because I didn't have air conditioning and people when I moved up here said no one in Seattle has air conditioning and I thought I'm from the desert southwest and I am dying of heat up here in the summer. So this past March and thank goodness it was before the heat dome, I put in electric heat pumps. So these are great because they give you air conditioning in the summer and then they give you heating in the, to the win in the winter. For the most part, and I bet there's some people in the audience who would argue with me on this one, we can talk offline, but when it hits about 35 degrees, they're not as efficient. And that's when you need the natural gas for backup. So that's using your existing infrastructure, using it less, letting it be part of the solution. But as we move to things like that, and I would encourage everyone to your question too, like people who are installing air conditioning, if you can afford it to pay a little more and get the electric heat pumps instead of a conventional HVAC system, do that because that also is helping with climate change. So the next question is from the audience. You mentioned hydrogen a couple of times. 
questions about hydrogen. They mentioned green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, which I don't understand. But what, what's the future role for hydrogen and how's PSE looking at it? So the role that we're contemplating for hydrogen is really twofold. I would say it's a substitute for natural gas in generating electricity. So like, for example, in a combined cycle facility or a simple cycle facility, using it in lieu of natural gas or additive to natural gas. So for example, today you can put in about 30% hydrogen by weight in most natural gas turbines and they'll run. And that is much better for the environment provided that it is either green hydrogen, which means hydrogen made from renewable energy, or blue hydrogen, which would be hydrogen made from natural gas with carbon capture, which is much more complicated. I'm more of an advocate of the green hydrogen. The other thing that we're looking at, and we actually have experiments going on in both of these and partnerships on both of these, is eventually finding a way to not only blend hydrogen into our natu existing natural gas pipeline structure, but to actually replace it. And there are some pilots going on in Europe, one in particular in Scotland that is doing a lot of this. But hydrogen is moving very, very quickly. I remember before I came here, when I was at El Paso Electric in 2018, I was talking to the head of Mitsubishi Power, a guy named Paul Browning, about the ability to build gas turbines that would run on hydrogen. And he said, it's doable right now. It's just a matter of commercializing the sources of hydrogen. And so that's the big thing right now. We've got to get more hydrogen. We've got to get to economies of scale so that it's more affordable. But PSE has entered into a partnership, an MOU with Mitsubishi Electric to develop hydrogen, both generation of hydrogen, using it for electric generation, transport of hydrogen, and then using it as battery storage. And then our own folks, our own PSE employees on the natural gas side are running a series of experiments using hydrogen actually um, in a controlled environment to replace natural gas. So a year ago, and this is another thing, it's just moving so fast. A year ago, there were zero, no, maybe two years ago, there were zero kind of hydrogen pilots in the US, and today there are 26. So this is one of those, if we can make it go, it will be a really, really big deal and a big game changer. Thank you, and thank you for the explanation of green versus blue. It's at least 50% yeah. right. All right. I guess I'll ask you the question that got you here in the first place. So what keeps you up at night? <laughs> Other than my son turning in his homework rather than wadding it up and leaving it in his backpack. No, it's still climate change. It's climate change, and it's also... So when I came here and I first spoke to employees on that January 3rd day that seems like two lifetimes ago, you know, as a new CEO, you talk about what you want to bring and what your vision is. And so, of course, mine was to work on climate change and then work on DEI because coming from a largely Mexican-American environment in the desert southwest, when I got here, I thought, wow, not a lot of diversity here. So that became imperative to me. And then when COVID happened, I just realized my role as a leader was very different than what I thought when the board interviewed me for the job. And I realized that my role was to take care of people during a very, very difficult time. And I think there are two ways that, that I was, I should say, honored or maybe blessed to be able to do that. And one is to continue to work on climate change, you know, make sure that we do not lose this momentum that for whatever reason we have right now, right? We've got to keep it going and keep the hope. And then the other one was people were suffering in ways that we had never seen before. I mean, I think that people always suffer, right? It's part of life, but it was magnified and it was more transparent. The blurring between the work and the personal life 
was happening a lot. We had a lot of mental health issues coming up. And in fact, I'm very proud of PSC's mental health program. I was actually mentioned in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago. I had nothing to do with it. But it was becoming a, a caretaker. And so I, I talked about the decision that we made not to lay anyone off and not to furlough people. The way we did that is we, and this is going to sound like not a big deal maybe, but we usually people have a 100% bonus opportunity for a given year. And for most people, those are the things that are nice for them. It's not what they need to put food on the table, but it's a vacation, or it's a down payment on a car, or it's something that you know, they put away for their kids' education. And we made a decision to limit bonus opportunities for one year to 25%. And that's real to people. That was, that was kind of the things that they looked forward to. And then we made a lot of other sacrifices too as a company. We made, we cut a lot of things that we considered, you know, necessary for employees and offices to have kind of basic quality of life. But we did it for the good of the whole. And we did it in consultation with all of our employees deciding that we would rather have all of us suffer a little than some of us have to pay, you know, the big price of being laid off during COVID. But then it also became our customers, right? We have to take care of our customers. It became you know, just so clear that so many people were facing things that I think most of us could never have faced before, right? It was as if our whole construct of what we believed in and what we took for granted and what we saw as solid in this world suddenly was mud under our feet, right? And so we had to be there for each other. So I never thought I'd have to do that, but I think we've all had to do that somewhat, right? But we're going to get through it, right? And we're going to come through stronger, going to take time to rebuild, to get our feet again, but it keeps me up at night that I have to do my very best to take care of the people who I have the privilege of, of leading and the customers who I have the privilege of serving. Mary, just going back to Kevin's question about equity and equality between the lower class or low income housing, what challenges do you foresee of helping them and what plans do you have to tackle them? Yeah, so I talked, I talked a little bit about our energy equity group. Mm -hmm. I think that is going to be mission critical because that is the, the first time that we've ever actually affirmatively invited people in to have a substantive seat at the table and for them to use their own voices to raise issues rather than us presuming we knew what their voices would be. Something else that we've done, we started right after COVID, but it had been in process a little bit before, is a community outreach group. And this group is specifically designed to get to those parts of the community that maybe we took for granted or we didn't know existed before. In particular, there are you know, just certain, for example, LGBTQ groups that we hadn't really thought about before and we hadn't done outreach with. Or we thought if we were in connection with one group that represented you know, a certain traditionally marginalized group that that was good enough. And it turns out, Shockingly, there are multiple different voices and viewpoints within a given group, right? And so we're actually trying to meet people out in the communities. We're also trying to use those same efforts to recruit, right? Because if you particularly look at our line employees on the electric and gas side, a lot of those are intergenerational employees, which is really great. But there's also not as many opportunities historically to bring in, for example, people of color or women. And so we're really making a concerted effort to do that. So I think meeting people where they are, making sure they have a voice. And there's a, do I have time to talk about a lesson I learned? Sure. Okay. So back in El Paso, which I love to talk about, we were trying to build a power plant 
It was a wonderful power plant, in my opinion. It was gas-fired, but they were called LMS units built by GE. They would fire zero to full load in 10 minutes, very energy efficient. And what they did was essentially, we put a lot of solar on our system and got off coal, so they allowed us to balance the solar out. Solar goes up and down, these plants balance it out. So we thought we had done this great job of figuring out where to site these plants. It was out in this area that had a bunch of trash dumps, and people would throw dead animal bodies, and. The um, Black and Veatch, the engineering firm, said this is the perfect place electrically. We filed all our required notices in the English language newspapers and did all these things. So lo and behold, we're getting ready to get our air permit. And at that time, Texas did not recognize greenhouse gases as a pollutant. Go, Texas. <laughs> ah! <laughs> but they do now, thankfully. Um, so we actually had to go to the EPA for a permit and Texas for a permit. So. There's a group called Legal Aid in El Paso. And the woman in charge of Legal Aid, her first name is Veronica, and we're actually now dear friends. But she came marching into my office and said, do you realize that there are people living out here and that you didn't consult with them on what's happening and they have no idea you know, what, what your plans are and this is their home? So there's, there's something called colonias. I don't know if you're familiar with them here, but they tend to be on the southwestern border of the U.S., very, very poor communities, many without basic services like electricity, water, gas. Many folks who are undocumented live in these communities, and they tend to be Spanish-language dominant. So I said, I'm really sorry, didn't know. And she's like, well, that's too bad. We're getting involved in your air permit, and we're going to sue you, and you're not going to be able to build this power plant. So she brought in the National Sierra Club. And over the course of two years, not only did she and I become great friends, and I learned some humility, and I learned how to be a better listener, I also became friends with the National Sierra Club, although they might not want to admit to that. <laughs> so we got to talking, and we actually realized that we had a lot of common goals. We wanted to make sure this community's voice was heard. We had common goals around the environment, like we at El Paso Electric wanted to get out of coal, and our communities wanted us to get out of coal. And then I also learned in terms of like meeting people where they are, what we should have done there, and what would have avoided a lot of trouble, is one, we should have been speaking to people in their language, and in the desert southwest that tends to be Spanish, so we should have been speaking in Spanish. We started speaking to people in two languages. Should have been obvious, right, like 50 years ago that we should have been doing that, but we started doing that. The second thing we should have done is there is a group of women who kind of travel around the communities. They're not licensed health professionals, but they perform some basic medical services and kind of spread the news, but they're very trusted professionals. We should have been working with them to spread the news, talk about this, solicit input. And so that's kind of an extreme example with a community that we had so much pride, we didn't even think about them. We didn't take into account their existence, their preferences, and learning to meet them where they were. And now, not only are those plants there, they have a huge solar facility. They're a community solar facility. Diabetes is a big issue there. El Paso has helped a lot on issues around diabetes. So it's about getting rid of the hubris, right? And also going back to the thing I said earlier, which is sometimes say, you know what? I was wrong, or you know what? You changed my mind. And that can be really healing, and that can lead to a lot of good. So that's, that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to listen more, meet people where they are and where it's convenient for them, and in the manner in which they would like to, to be communicated with. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that'll help. Yeah. We'll get there. I guess with that, Mary, um, yeah. I know you have a goal for 2045 with like net zero carbon, but how do you see this idea of community being formulated or formed within the future years of your own vision? 
community, you mean around energy? Or Correct, yes. Yeah, so kind of going back to what I said before, it's imperative that all of us be part of the beneficiaries of the clean energy transformation and that folks who may not have had the voices on it before. And usually those are people who are too busy, like raising their kids, putting food on the table, going about their daily lives, making sure that those people um, can be part of it as well. I think that I think is really the great equalizer and that really allows everybody to be part of this is education. And entities like Seattle University that seek to educate everyone and provide a stellar education to everyone and provide a lot of financial aid and loans and these kinds of things, if we can get to a point where education is even a quasi-level playing field and we don't have some people who are so disadvantaged, I think we can raise everyone up. What do you think? I agree. I think just bringing that cognizance to all students as well as just understanding that whatever situation they're in, that we can teach them still no matter what. Yeah. I think it's very important. Yeah. And teach people to use their voice and not be afraid. Absolutely. Okay, my question is, what advice would you like to give our women students about leadership, right? Like, some of them might want to aspire to be a CEO someday like yourself. So what are some lessons you have learned that you could pass along tonight? So one, make sure you really want to be a CEO. No, it's great. It's such a privilege. So one thing I would say to women is I spent a lot of years, I graduated from college in 1989, the era of the Wolf of Wall Street, you know. So I spent a lot of years trying to be like a man. And I was never going to be as good of a man as a man. And I, I think women have transcended that now. And I think, but just be your authentic self. And if you're kind of quirky or kind of nerdy, which I am, People either like that or they don't, but let them see who you are. And sometimes, you know, being authentic is the best way to be a leader. The other thing I would say is, even if you aspire to be a CEO, the odds of becoming one are so low, not because you're not talented or worthy. There's so much luck involved. And so odds are, it's kind of like, I don't know, let's say you want to go to Harvard. That's the only place you want to go, so nowhere else is good enough. So if you don't get into Harvard, then you're going to give up. It's kind of like the CEO. You know, it doesn't mean you're not smart, but maybe you're going to go to Princeton. <laughs> you know, maybe you're going to go to Seattle University. Maybe you're going to go to the University of Texas. But know that wherever you go, whatever you do, you want to make sure it's a place that resonates with you and that you believe in the values and the mission. Because that's actually what it is. It's the journey. It's not what you arrive at. So I always call myself an accidental CEO because... When I was at El Paso Electric, I'd actually moved back to El Paso from D.C. for personal reasons. And I took a pay cut from the federal government, which is hard to imagine, but I did. And I did it for my family. And I thought, this is the end of my career. This is just great. I'm going to toil away in obscurity. Hooray! And then along came an interim CEO off our board. And his name is Tom Shockley. And in fact, he and his wife are visiting me next month. So I'm very excited. But he was a wonderful leader. And he cared deeply about our community in El Paso and the border region, the values. He cared deeply about climate change. What he would say to me sitting alone in his office is exactly what he would say publicly. He was very respectful of his wife and thought of her as an equal, which mattered to me a lot. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do here, but I'm going to make sure this guy is successful because he's going to make a difference for the world. So two years later, I'm asked if I'm interested in succeeding him. And so... There you go. It's about aligning what you believe and something that you can get behind and get excited about. And that's actually what will allow you to succeed ironically. And like I said, it's really the journey. It's not really where you arrive. 
You know, I would just like to comment, you know, what you said about, about being a woman in this industry. It's not easy, right? You know, for our company, same thing. There's 20% female representation across the globe, which is uncomfortable when yeah. you're the only woman in the meeting sometimes. So, yeah. so thank you for your comments around that. And it's a struggle to stay in the game some days, but it is really refreshing to, to hear you and your authentic self today. So I really, really appreciate you. your, your comments. It really resonates a lot with me. Thank you. I do have a question about being a publicly traded company and your obligation to shareholders that when we talk about climate change and also, you know, government regulation. So here in the state of Washington, as you mentioned, is very active in regulation of our utilities and also shareholders expect a return on their investment. So what would you say to the folks who say, well, this is greenwashing really at the end of the day, you want to make money and just make sure that the government doesn't, you know, curtail your business? Yeah, so first I would say, if that's true, boy, am I wasting my life because that's not what I want to be doing. So let's let's first look at it from a le- And by the way, we're not publicly traded. PSE used to be publicly traded. And it's not a huge difference because we have public debt. My former employer, El Paso Electric, was publicly traded. But we still have the same legal obligation to the shareholders, which I'm not a very good lawyer, but I think our main legal obligation is to provide long-term value for the shareholders. Overarching that, though, as a regulated entity, we have an obligation to serve. So we have an obligation to provide reliable, affordable, and I would say clean energy to our customers under CETA. So we have a dual legal obligation. Washington, in particular, in the Pacific Northwest, and this is something that I've learned coming up here, has a long history of public power, right? publicly owned so that, and and not publicly traded, publicly owned, meaning owned by the people. And so I've actually spent a lot of time talking to folks up here about, and Deborah Smith of Seattle City Light has become a dear friend. So we spend time kind of talking about the respective merits. I think that as a CEO in today's world, I look at my North Star. Yes, I do have to provide an acceptable return to my shareholders. The Washington Commission will tell me what that return is, by the way. I don't get to decide that. But I look at it, going back to kind of transparency and multiple stakeholders and things, I think for any corporation to be successful, and I square this with my legal obligation by saying, and therefore provide long-term value to my shareholders, you got to take into account all the stakeholders. You have to look at your customers. You have to look at your communities. You have to look at your elected officials. Like, we don't make public policy. We can try to influence it, but we follow it. And I also believe, and I've said this for a number of years, and some people roll their eyes because this may not score legally, but I believe the environment itself and the earth is a stakeholder. And so I think that when we look at long-term value to our shareholders in that way, it begins to make more sense and is easy to square. The other thing is, is that capital, whether you're public power or investor-owned power, has to come from somewhere. So if it's public power, you have to have bonds. So you still have to provide a return to someone, right? It's just a different type of holder. In that case, it's a debt holder versus an equity holder. In our case, we have a combination of equity holders, the vast majority of whom, actually all of them, are government pension funds. So they're retired government employees. And we get a lot of criticism because they're, none of them are American, they're Canadian and Dutch, and they're like the foreign investors. And I'm like, well, they're policemen, <laughs> firefighters, teachers, you know. But the capital has to come from somewhere, so there's always going to be a return element to it. But I think they both have advantages and disadvantages. And I think public power comes with a real sense of pride. I think investor-owned, I think we tend to innovate a little bit more. 
I just, I think that, that we do. If there were public power people up here, they'd probably point fingers and argue with me, but I, I think we do. And I think the fact that PSC has by far the lion's share of this whole clean energy transformation in the state of Washington, not only because we're the big dog, but we don't have as much hydro allocation from BPA. Bonneville Power Administration, largely that's allocated to some of the publics. We have the, the biggest lift on the clean energy transformation. And so we need to be able to attract the capital. And I think if, if we were just left to governmental entities having to do that, I think it would be devastating to many of them. So that, that's what I would say. But yeah, capitalism is capitalism. And I think the key is as a leader and investor and utility is don't work for a company that doesn't square with your values. I've left a company before that didn't square with my values at great personal peril. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. So I think it's, I think it's okay. How's that for like a all over the place, stream of consciousness, you know, jazz answer. Okay. There you go. Next time we'll get the public power people up there. <laughs> and then we can duke it out. Bring, bring Deborah. Well, that is a great wrap up for us, Mary. So thank you so much for thank joining you. us tonight. Let's give Mary and our panelists a round of applause. You've been listening to the Leadership Playbook the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.